This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 9th. Today, the constitutional battle over impeaching an ex-president and how the Keystone XL pipeline became a political shorthand for climate policy. The Senate will be in order. Today was the first day of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial in the Senate. And the Senate will convene as a court of impeachment. And though Trump is facing the charge of incitement of insurrection, the central question that faced the Senate on Tuesday was not really about this charge. It was about whether it's actually constitutional to be impeaching Trump at all. Esteemed members of the Senate, going forward with this impeachment trial of a former president of the United States is unconstitutional for reasons we have set out in our brief, some of which we'll focus on here. And as a matter of policy, it is wrong, as wrong can be for all of us as a nation. Trump's lawyers and many Republicans in the Senate are arguing that you can't impeach a president if they are no longer president. This is supposed to be the ultimate safety valve, the last thing that happens, the most rare treatment. So the slippery slope principle will have taken hold if we continue to go forward with what is happening today and scheduled to happen later this week. So Republicans are arguing that because Trump has already left office and is no longer the sitting president, that the Senate cannot uh, constitutionally hold this hearing. That's Anne Marimo. She covers legal affairs for The Post. I think most scholars who have studied this issue and looked at the history and past practice by Congress agree uh, that an impeachment trial can be held after an official has left office. But the language in the Constitution is not specific on this front. This is an untenable combination that literally puts the institution of the presidency directly at risk. Nothing less. And it does much more. Under their unsupportable constitutional theory and tortured reading of the text, every civil officer who has served is at risk of impeachment if any given group elected to the House decides that what was thought to be important service to the country 
when they served, now deserves to be canceled. So the relevant sections of the Constitution talk about a president, vice president, and other civil officers of the United States being removed from office on impeachment for conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And then separately, it says that judgment in these cases shall not extend further than removal from office and also disqualification to hold and enjoy office essentially in the future. So the language in the Constitution talks about the conduct um, of the official, but it does not talk about the timing of any trial. And that's why Republicans can embrace this argument that if you look just at the text, it talks about the conduct, but not the timing. I mean, let's understand why we are really here. We are really here because the majority in the House of Representatives does not want to face Donald Trump as a political rival in the future. That's the real reason we're here. And that's why they have to get over the jurisdictional hurdle, which they can't get over. And today, we also heard House impeachment managers make their case that this trial is, in fact, constitutional. So we heard from Congressman Jamie Raskin. In other words, conduct that would be a high crime and misdemeanor in your first year as president and your second year as president and your third year as president And for the vast majority of your fourth year as president, you can suddenly do in your last few weeks in office without facing any constitutional accountability at all. This would create a brand new January exception to the Constitution of the United States of America. We also heard from Representatives Joe Neguse and David Cicilline, who are both Democrats who are also serving as House impeachment managers. And you don't need to be a constitutional scholar to know that the argument President Trump asks you to adopt is not just wrong, it's dangerous. The argument that you lack jurisdiction rests on a purely fictional loophole. Purely fictional. So Anne, what supports their argument that this trial is in fact constitutional? Well, they do have a lot of scholarship on their side. More than 150 constitutional law scholars have signed on to a letter saying that they very much can go ahead with this, that it is constitutional, that the language in the Constitution has two parts. One is removal from office as a punishment, and then second is disqualification from future office. They make the argument that there wouldn't be this second uh, disqualification from future office if it only applied to someone who is still in office, and so that they say they can try former officials. And then secondly, they point to the history, and there are examples when the Senate has held impeachment trials for former officials. One of the key examples that Democrats point to is 1876. Arguably the most important precedent that this body has to consider. The trial of former Secretary of War William Belknap. The Secretary of War at the time, William Belknap, resigned literally moments before the House voted to impeach him. The House discovered that he was involved in a massive kickback scheme. And he was gone from office, but the Senate still went ahead and held a trial for this former executive branch official. They failed to get the two-thirds vote needed to convict him, but they say this is an example of the Senate essentially affirming its authority to do this after the official has left office. It ensured his accountability and deterred anyone else from considering such corruption by making clear that it was intolerable. 
And it seems like what Democrats are trying to argue here is that the ability to impeach someone after leaving office is important in terms of serving as a deterrent for the future. That if you can just get away with whatever you want in the waning days of a presidency or any other type of federal office, that it sends a bad message if you can just not face any consequences for that. Right. They say the Senate doesn't lose its power to hold the trial just because the official is no longer in office. And right, that part of this power is to disqualify the person from holding future office. And the concern is that someone could just leave office uh, to avoid conviction and the punishment of, of being disqualified going forward. It would literally mean that a president could betray their country, leave office and avoid impeachment and disqualification entirely. And, you know, what I found notable about this trial so far on the first day, and I think it might signal a little bit of what is to come, but it really seems like the House impeachment managers are trying to make things personal for the members of the Senate who are sitting and watching all of this. Like, they're trying to remind them that, like, we were there, that we were all threatened, that we witnessed this firsthand. And make no mistake about it. As you think about that day, things could have been much worse. As one senator said, they could have killed all of us. Like every one of you, I was in the Capitol on January 6th. I was on the floor with lead manager Raskin. Like every one of you, I was evacuated as this violent mob stormed the Capitol's gates. So what are the stakes or potential outcomes of this constitutional question that is starting out the impeachment trial? Well, it's interesting. It allows the Republicans to focus on the process and the procedure rather than to talk about the merits and questions about Donald Trump's action. He's been charged um, with a single count of inciting uh, the riot, the violent attack at the Capitol on January 6th. And going into this, was there ever any real concern that enough Senate Republicans would vote on the side of this idea that this trial is unconstitutional and essentially cancel the impeachment trial before it really even got underway? So there was a key test vote um, advanced on a motion by Senator Rand Paul, who is really the, the first to put this forward to say that this is unconstitutional and essentially that the trial should be dismissed before it even gets started. All but five Republican senators backed Paul's objections. It's also interesting that the Senate is the body that is facing these constitutional questions rather than something like the Supreme Court. If Trump or his lawyers don't like what the outcome of of these this first round of arguments is about whether or not this trial is constitutional, is this something that he could take to the Supreme Court and have them weigh in? So impeachment is a quasi-court process and a, very much a political process. He could try to go to court if he doesn't like the outcome. It would have to start with a lower court and work its way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has signaled in the past that it really does not want to be involved in what it considers a political question about impeachment. I mean, different legal standards apply when you're talking about an impeachment process than a traditional criminal trial in a courtroom. So he could 
could very much try to go to court, but the Supreme Court has shown in the past that it's not interested in taking this on, that it believes that this is a process for the Senate and for the legislature and not the judiciary. And what are the other arguments that we are hearing early on in the impeachment trial? So the other main question that's being put forward, an argument from Trump's lawyers, is they are saying that that this is a First Amendment defense, that Trump's rhetoric and fiery language at the rally um, and the lead up to the attack on the Capitol is protected speech by the First Amendment. So that will be the other main constitutional argument we'll hear from Trump's legal team. And how much does that argument hold water? I mean, obviously, there are criminal charges that could be filed for inciting violence. What is the argument from Democrats that that is something that applies to the speech from the president? So again, there's a difference between the impeachment proceeding and a traditional criminal case. And I think it's true um, that there's a difference in opinion about whether or not Trump could be successfully prosecuted in a traditional courtroom for incitement. The bar is very high for those free speech protections. But again, this is an impeachment proceeding, and he's accused of violating his oath of office and high crimes and misdemeanors, and a whole different set of standards apply. So Democrats say that the First Amendment defense is not viable in an impeachment proceeding. Anne Marimo covers legal affairs for The Post. On this vote, the A's are 56, the days are 44. Early Tuesday evening, the Senate voted to proceed with the impeachment trial, rejecting the argument that it is unconstitutional. The Senate shall proceed with the trial as provided under the provisions of that resolution. The impeachment trial of Donald Trump will reconvene on Wednesday at noon for opening arguments. Let me get to it. Today uh, is climate day at the White House, and uh, which means that today is jobs day at the White House. We're talking about American innovation, American products, American labor. President Biden has made climate change one of his top four policy priorities since taking office. Juliet Alprin covers energy and environmental policy for The Post. And we have seen a number of actions that he's taken on this front. It's, uh, that's why I'm signing today an ex- executive order to supercharge our administration's ambitious plan to confront the existential threat of climate change. It is an existential threat. He's signed multiple executive orders addressing everything from reaffirming the United States' commitment to the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Look, this executive order I'm signing today also makes it official that climate change will be the center of our national security and foreign policy. To pushing to make the entire federal fleet of vehicles electric. We're going to harness the purchasing power of the federal government to buy clean, zero-emission vehicles that are made and sourced by union workers right here in America. To denying the cross-border permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, which was one of the actions he took on his very first day in office. (laughs) 
Tell me a little bit about the history of this pipeline. The Keystone XL pipeline is a massive pipeline project initially estimated to cost $8 billion, which is slated to run from Alberta, Canada, down through the United States to the U.S. Gulf Coast, where the oil that's extracted can be refined and shipped globally. It's been the subject of a huge amount of controversy for the last decade and a half. What's happened over the last several years is that the lower half of the pipeline is in operation. It runs from Cushing, Oklahoma, down to the Gulf Coast. But there's been a long-running battle over the northern leg of this pipeline, which needs approval from the President of the United States for cross-border permits so that it can transport heavy crude from Canada through Montana and Nebraska down south. And at the very beginning, This wasn't on folks' radar screen as much at the time, in fact, when the permit was being processed. Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and environmentalists were certainly trying to block it. But it it was not a national issue. But when a more sweeping climate bill failed in 2010 in the Senate when Democrats had control of both Congress and the White House and ultimately then lost control of Congress. It became the one act that the president of the United States could do alone to address climate change in a major way. Here was this massive project transporting, you know, a huge amount of crude oil, the dirtiest crude oil in the world because it takes more energy to process this oil than, say, lighter crude or crude that, you know, we, for example, extract on the Great Plains. And so climate activists thought if they could stop this one massive project, which President Obama had the right to do by himself, it would be a victory. It would say that we weren't locking in this kind of fossil fuel infrastructure for decades to come. And so as a result, it really galvanized activists, particularly in the United States, who formed a coalition with a number of tribes as well as ranchers who lived along this route and were very concerned about the pipeline's impact in terms of potential spills or disturbing their landscape or their historic lands. And so that's how it came to be a top-tier climate issue. And how has the fate of this pipeline evolved in the years since the Obama administration? Well, there have been a number of twists and turns. For example, back in late 2015, President Obama decided to reject the permit. This morning, Secretary Kerry informed me that after extensive public outreach and consultation with other cabinet agencies, the State Department has decided that the Keystone XL pipeline would not serve the national interests of the United States. I agree with that decision. He had said that even before everything was finalized, that he would not approve it because he argued that it would be too damaging in terms of climate change. Because ultimately, if we're going to prevent large parts of this earth from becoming not only inhospitable, but uninhabitable in our lifetimes, we're going to have to keep some fossil fuels in the ground rather than burn them and release more dangerous pollution into the sky. So at that point, I and others thought that the fate of this project was sealed. But no. This is with regard to the construction of the Keystone Pipeline, something that's been in dispute, and it's subject to a renegotiation of terms by us. President Trump came in, and on his first day of office, 
signed an executive order approving this cross-border permit for the Keystone Pipeline. A lot of jobs, 28,000 jobs, great construction jobs. And so at that point, certainly the new administration was doing everything possible to ease the construction. And it's worth noting that actually the southern leg of the pipeline, which goes from Cushing, Oklahoma, which is a major storage hub, to the Gulf Coast, was actually approved by Obama in 2012 before his reelection. So they allowed that part to go forward. But the northern leg of the pipeline is the one that's at issue. President Trump approved it, but there were a number of legal fights. And in fact, it has been contested in federal court for the past four years. And so as a result, that provided an opportunity for President Biden to come in and on his first day in office, rescind the cross-border permit that his predecessor, Donald Trump, had issued for the pipeline. And without that permit, the project is essentially stuck. You can't operate and construct this pipeline without approval from the president of the United States. So then is there an expectation that the Biden administration will take further steps for this pipeline to make more dramatic change or on other pipelines? I mean, is this part of a larger kind of effort by the Biden administration? I would say it's a larger effort both by the Biden administration, but just as significantly on the part of environmental activists to really stop, I guess I would say, kind of turn off the spigot in every way possible. So, for example, they've certainly had success in terms of styming this project. And then if you look at the other major pipeline project that President Trump okayed on his first day in office, the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is, in fact, controversial both because of its climate impact, but even more so because of tribal activists who argue that this was a violation of their sovereignty, that this pipeline, by crossing their lands, you know, really is unacceptable. That also has suffered legal setbacks. And in fact, even last week, the D.C. Circuit Court ruled that the Army Corps of Engineers didn't adequately conduct a environmental analysis. And so it has, has really undercut the underpinnings for that pipeline approval. And climate activists are targeting every pipeline in the nation. But what you're seeing is almost kind of a, a game of whack-a-mole, where every time a pipeline project comes up, environmental a- activists are going to target it. And now they have a sympathetic administration. For the last four years, they had been fighting with Trump officials who were doing everything they could to accelerate pipeline construction. Now they have an ally in the White House, and that's going to make these projects, which are very costly, more difficult to do. And what do oil companies have to say about this? The fact that, you know, under one administration that they are given essentially a green light and then another one, that green light is very quickly rescinded. Where do they see themselves in this in this fight? They're very frustrated with the uncertainty. Again, when you're talking about these projects that cost, you know, obviously in the case of Keystone, $8 billion with many of these other projects, certainly, you know, a billion dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. It's just incredibly hard to pursue a long-term project when it's so unclear whether you're going to get the regulatory approval you need. So they're immensely frustrated. At, At the same time, you know, they are not willing to, for example, 
say, okay, we're going to give up on pipelines altogether. They see this as one of the most efficient, economical, and safest ways to transport fossil fuels. And they would argue that this is a country where, you know, 98% of the vehicles run on oil. You know, we are we are not a country that doesn't need oil. And so their argument is we're simply just being less efficient and opening ourselves up to stymieing domestic production. So if this is one of the first aspects of the Biden administration, like taking a stand against climate change, what are the potential political ramifications for Biden and for the climate change movement? I think you can see it as having both risks and opportunities. So in terms of the upside for the Biden administration, this is a way to deliver to both his political base who helped put him in office. There were, you know, climate activists that mobilized to help support his candidacy. And he made commitments to equity and listening to Americans of color and without question certainly is a way for him to communicate to his most loyal supporters that he's delivering on what he promised on the campaign trail. In addition, it certainly helps him in some way help achieve the climate goals that he set out as a marker for his presidency. On the flip side, there are absolutely risks involved. There are certainly a number of high paying jobs associated with doing construction on pipelines. These are skilled union jobs. And while, for example, the industry gives a what, you know, by our accounts is an exaggerated number of jobs, they talk about, say, 10,000 jobs being at stake. That's much higher than we would expect. The fact of the matter is there are absolutely high paying jobs for men and women to work on these pipelines, and you can't have those if you're not building them. In addition, there is a real question of energy security. I mean, we, again, have an opportunity to import oil from one of our closest allies. We do it every day. And when you have a massive pipeline or a number of pipelines, it makes it easier and it delivers that oil and, and gas to places that need it across the country. I'm also really struck by the image that even though this pipeline won't be in operation, that the the crude oil is still being transported in different ways and still being used. And so I, I wonder, like, how much how much will this actually affect the state of the environment? So when I look at the battle over the Keystone XL pipeline, which I've been covering for a decade, what I'm struck by is the fact that the United States is often embroiled in these side battles over individual questions, because it's so difficult to grapple with this central overarching question of how do we tackle climate change. And the reason I say this is because if you talk to any scientist or economist or policy expert who's working on climate change, they would tell you that putting a price on carbon is really one of the fundamental steps that's needed in order to shift what sort of energy development we do in the United States. And That's something that we're still not grappling with, partially because it is so politically toxic. President Biden has come in and he's already set in motion a number of major policies that will affect how we extract and use energy. But the fact is, right now, the very oil that environmentalists are trying to stop 
up in Canada is being transported by rail. And in fact, the proponents of the pipeline would argue that that's less safe and less environmentally friendly in terms of the emissions associated with it than shipping it through a pipeline. It's not like we've stopped importing heavy crude oil from Canada. We are doing that day in and day out. So I don't mean to say that this entire battle is symbolic. It's not, because when we construct a major pipeline, that locks in a way of extracting fossil fuels for decades to come. But at the same time, it's not actually going to the heart of what needs to happen if the United States is actually committed to transitioning away from fossil fuels. Juliet Alprin covers energy and environmental policy for The Post. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We will have updates from the impeachment trial throughout the week. But if you want the latest about what's happening, you should definitely check out another podcast here at The Post, The Daily 202's Big Idea. It's a quick, smart, newsy morning briefing. And this week, they will have all the latest developments and insights from the trial that you may have missed from the night before. Subscribe to The Daily 202 on your podcast app or find a link in today's Post Reports show notes. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 